0: Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Editor at Large, Kate Wolf. Hi, Kate.
1: Hi, Eric. Are we well, actually, actually in the studio actually, together? Actually, no, we today? are not
0: in the studio together today. I'm actually recording from KUCI in Irvine, Ooh. California, at the University of California, Irvine, and Kate is recording from KPFK in sunny Studio City. Get that out there. Yeah, exactly. Full disclosure. Yeah, But we are talking today about a conversation that we both had together in the same room (laughs) at Emerson with poet Ariana Rain about her latest collection, A Sand Book, which I really enjoyed for there were any number of reasons. I think her reflections, which we talk about in the show, her reflections on what social media does to us kind of on a subject level, subject psychological level, were really interesting. And... Also she is very fascinating oh, yeah. and like kind of moves in all different directions at once. it seems
1: she is a genius.
0: Did you have any other favorite moments from that show?
1: um I just love how brilliant Ariane is and and how open she is and I just think her writing is on a different level from lots of other things that I read it's it's just the intensity and the lyricism and Yes, It's just knockout. And I and I wanted to note that if people like this interview, Ariana actually wrote a very excellent essay for LARB many years ago on Francesca, on the photographer Francesca Woodman that can be found Ooh. online, and it's really excellent. So, okay, so people can check that out. A little plug for that.
0: And, exactly. And also, people will be able to hear her poetry when she reads the selection at the top of this conversation.
1: Yes, we'll be starting with a poem from the All same right. book.
0: So let's get to it. Great. We're excited to have poet, performance artist, playwright, and translator Ariana Rains with us in the studio today. Ariana is the author of three poetry collections and the multiple Obie Award-winning play, Telephone. She joins us today to talk about her latest collection, A Sand Book. Welcome to the show, Ariana.
1: Thank you. We were hoping that you would start by reading
2: a poem. Okay. I'm going to read the poem of your choosing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And we should also tell listeners that this is just a selection from this longer poem.
2: A partial history. Long after I stopped participating, those images pursued me. I found myself turning from them, even in the small light before dawn, to meet the face of my own body, still taut and strong, almost too strong a house for so much shame, not mine alone but also yours and my brother's, lots of people's. I know it was irrational, for whom I saw myself responsible and to whom I wished to remain hospitable. We had all been pursuing our own disintegration for so long by then that by the time the other side began to raise a more coherent complaint against us, we devolved with such ease and swiftness it seemed to alarm even our enemies. By then, many of us had succumbed to quivering idiocy while others drew vitality from new careers as public scolds. Behind these, middle management professors were at pains to display their faultless views, lest they too find censure, infamy, unemployment, and death at the hands of an enraged public. Individuals in such pain and torment and such confusion hardly anyone dared ask more of them than that they not shoot. And in fact, many of us willed them to shoot, and some of us were the shooters, and shoot we did, and got us square in the heart and in the face, which anyway, we had been preparing these long years for bullets and explosions and whatever else, a vast unpaid army of self-destructors, false comrades, impotent brainiacs who wished to appear to be kind, everything we did for our government and the corporations that served it we did for free in exchange for the privilege of watching one another break down. Sometimes we were the ones doing the breaking. We would comfort one another afterward, congratulating each other on the fortitude it took to display such vulnerability. The demonstration of an infirmity followed by a self-justificatory recuperation of our own means and our own ends, in short of ourselves and our respect for ourselves, this amounted to the dominant rhetoric of the age, which some called sharing, which partook of modes of oratory and of polemic, of intimate journals and of statements from on high issued by public figures whom at one time or another we all mistook ourselves for. Anyway, it wasn't working. None of it was working not our ostentation and not the uses we put our suffering to, the guilt and schadenfreude-based attention we extracted from our friends and followers, and even the passing sensation of true sincerity, of actual truth, quickly emulsified into the great and the terrible metastasizing whole, to the point it began to seem wisest to publish only within the confines of our own flesh, but our interiors had their biometrics too, and were functions not only of stardust, the universe as we now were prone to addressing the Godhead, but also of every mean and median of the self-same vicious culture that drove us to retreat into the jail of our own bones and the cramped confines of our swollen veins and ducts in the first place. Our skin was the same wall they talked about on the news, and our hearts were the bombs whose threat never withdrew. Images could drop from above, like the pendulum in The Pit and the Pendulum, or killer drones to shatter the face of our lover, into contemporaneous pasts, futures, celebrities, and other lovers, all of whom our attention paid equally in confusion and longing, and a fleeting sense like passing ghosts of a barely-remarked-upon catastrophe that was over both before and after it was too late. We were ancient creatures built for love and war. Everything said so. And we could not face how abstract it was all becoming, because it was also all the opposite of abstract. It was our flesh, our mother's bloodied forehead on the floor of Penn Station, and wherever we hid our face, amid a crowd of stars, for example, as Yeats once put it, and for stars, insert celebrities or astrology here, your choice, And even when we closed our eyes, all this was all we looked at, every day, all day. It was all we could see. We were lost in a language of images. It was growing difficult to speak. Yet talk was everywhere. Some of us still sought to dominate one another intellectually, others physically, still others psychically or some of all of the above. Everything seeming to congeal into bad versions of sports by other means. And sports by that time was the only metaphor left that could acceptably be applied to anything. The images gave us no rest, yet failed over and over, despite the immensity of their realism, to describe the world as we really knew it, and worse, as it knew us.
0: Thank you. Thank you. That's great. So I actually have a question for you about this poem. One of the things that I think is happening here is your critique of the promise and I think also your estimation of the failure of our cultural investment in social media. So can you just talk a little bit about how you think of social media in this current moment and kind of the anti-humanist tendencies maybe that it has or dehumanizing tendencies Mm -hmm. that you point to in the poem? I
2: really see it as we're in a process with it. Mm. So I'm not saying social media is evil. The internet should be bombed and we should all retreat into caves. But I think that we have not yet learned how to use language. Mm. We haven't yet learned how to communicate. And we also haven't yet figured out how to build and rebuild a kind of technology that better reflects the fullness of who we are and what we are. Mm. I think the internet as we now experience it very much reflects the people who built it, their concerns, their ideas about what the person is. You know, even if you go back to some of the founders of the internet, back in the exhilarating moment of it, I think there was a manifesto that was co-written By a group of people, which included one of the, a guy who was like a lyricist from the Grateful Dead and like very much, you know, an early internet pioneer. And these men were very exhilarated by the idea of getting rid of the body. Mm. And they had all kinds of other ideas that had to do with them being straight men and then being men of a certain time and men of a certain socioeconomic background. And I think there are so many things in the manifestation of what seems to be real in what is coming through all of our equipment mm-hmm. uh, in this time that is distorted. You know, it's a distortion at best. And you mean like
0: avatars, not selves.
2: Avatars, right? not selves. Yeah. The way certain kinds of immediacy are made possible and certain modes of expression are favored. The way that the negativity is linked to capital with mm, such mm-hmm. an uh, incredible intimacy, all of these things are really interesting, and they take some. You know, my strategy in order to write this book was to I was sort of infused with all of it because I'm part of this culture. Sure, but i I chose to respond in a different medium. I wanted to talk about that because. You have an
1: ability, which I think is so powerful of in this book, especially like there's the way that you connect to and comment on contemporary culture, but there's a distance that you also have. And there's a way of poetry is a kind of ancient tradition. And I think there's another register where you're more in like esoteric knowledge. And that's what makes the refraction of our current culture seem so like I can see it more clearly because I'm also not seeing it from the point of view of someone enmeshed in it, it seems. I mean, even though you are and like I do see you on Facebook and you are like a good presence on on Facebook it's not that you're not a part of the culture but you're able to get the distance. So maybe you could talk about those different registers and how you use them or if they're persona or if they're what they mean to you as a person.
2: Yeah, there's several ways to come at this partly because the book also spans a period of time during which so much galactic change happened and it happened. But the way the change happened was with such immediacy in all of our bodies. It's like very difficult to actually speak to. There's one piece, which is to strategically remove myself from certain conversations and to decline to use certain media. Like I could have been tweeting my food choices and my (laughs) dating life or my fitness regime this whole time. And I might be better known. (laughs) Like there's so many ways that I could have, I don't know, been more savvy with my use of social media during this period. But I couldn't make this work if I were doing that because what I wanted to figure out was what was happening to my consciousness. And the medium that I've studied most devotedly is the lyric. So I had to figure out what kind of lyric poetry I could write that wasn't just me trying to tweet really well. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> or like offer a really eloquent hot take on the day's bullshit. Yeah. So there's that. There's the strategies that a work of art demands, right? There's also, during this period of writing this, I went through massive PTSD. And that totally changed the way that I relate to language and the way that I relate to quote unquote the public. and I've had trolls and haters and stalkers since the beginning of my extremely obscure poetry career, which should say something about what it means to be a woman in public at this time. I've dealt with that sort of thing for more than a decade, but I had never experienced harassment in a university setting from a colleague. And that experience really triggered a very, very painful overwhelming, not only just sort of physical PTSD, where I was just having very frightening physical somatic reactions to experiences that I'd had long, long ago that I had thought were no longer in my body, but it also made me really think about and question my capacities and language most fundamentally. It gave me stage fright. It removed my desire to appear in public. I'd never had problems with those things in the past. And I had just done a huge performance at the Whitney. You know, I had been getting more used to being in public in different ways and in different arenas. And that experience, while all kinds of poetry wars and takedowns and things were happening, and this was also three years before Me Too when this experience happened. Mm. So going through all of that, also really shifted my sense of what can be said, what the conditions are for a certain kind of utterance, what lyric has taught me, what epic has taught me, where poetry sits With respect to the culture, is it responding to the culture or is it originating the culture? All of those questions were things that I was really seriously working on. And so, yeah, I couldn't totally remove myself from social media because I'm a person and (laughs) and also a traveler. And the (laughs) fact is, if you're traveling and you don't, if you're not in one of these matrices, you can't connect to the people you love.
0: Well, Mm -hmm. so this is the other thing that comes up. I mean, I'm fascinated by this personally in many of the same ways that you are. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, well, if social media on the one hand is nothing but identity, the construction and generation of various identities, Mm -hmm. brand identities actually usually, I think. How do you operate in a world in which your identity almost doesn't circulate at all. Like, you don't circulate at all unless you are on one of these channels, right? Unless your language is being conscripted into, like, functioning on Twitter, functioning on Facebook, something like that. So, like, how do you navigate that kind of alienation and presence at the same time?
2: That's a beautiful question, and I'm really happy that you set up the binary of alienation and presence, and I would add a third point to just triangulate that, complicity.
0: Mm, sure. Which is
2: also what I wanted certain sections of this book to really deal with, Mm -hmm. like Sandra and Morica and other parts of it. The energy drain and the sorrow of complicity is, I think, something that a lot of people feel but we don't have words for Mm. because of that bind that you articulated so well. And likewise, the construction of identity, the weaponization of suffering— the weaponization of anything available, Mm -hmm. the weaponization Mm -hmm. also of weapons. All of these things we've seen the chaotic symptoms and results of in, in all kinds of different ways, many of them really awful. I wanted to participate more, especially during the period that I was really, really traumatized. It hurt the silence that was filling me, and I tried to address it. And the section that's sort of most about the PTSD era of this period is two, actually. There's The Saddest Year of My Life Mm -hmm. and Nine Neoclassical Poems. And both of those sections come out of that period. And Silence, which some modernists spent a lot of time trying to write about in connection with the Holocaust. Blanchot, of course, Ceylon, who's one of the book's tutelary Mm spirits— And I guess the deconstructionist Derrida wrote a lot about the kind of rigorous silences that came out of trauma. And it's a moment, we've been in a moment that has been so loud that it kind of takes a weird work of art, maybe, to make a space for some of that silence.
0: You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Ariana Rains, author of A Sand Book. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation.
2: We have Erica Jong
3: here. She doesn't need an introduction. I won't introduce her. But she is here to recommend a book. Erica, what book are you going to recommend? Well, currently I'm, I'm reading Barry Lopez's Horizon. Barry Lopez, I guess you could call him a nature writer. Mm-hmm. But he's way beyond that. He's a philosopher. He loves to go to places where there are indigenous people and live with them and find out what makes them tick. Horizon by Barry Lopez. And in one of the chapters in that book, he says he's with an indigenous tribe, I don't know which one. And he says, the indigenous people say, we must redream our world. Interesting. In order to change it, we have to redream it. Mm-hmm. And that's where the writer comes in. We are the dreamers. Who will redream the world. We're like shaman. We're like givers of light. We are the ones. We have a responsibility to help people redream their world. That's
2: a very nice sentiment to end on. Will you tell us again the title of the book and the author?
3: Barry Lopez Horizon. Great. Thank you so much, Erica. Thank
2: you.
0: You are listening to the Larb Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Ariana Rains, author of A Sandbook.
1: I wonder if you could, just because it is such a big book and it, and it has so much, I mean, I was telling you before the show, it's like five books in one or, or more. Maybe you could just walk us through different sections, how you constructed it, where you know how you put it together as a
2: book itself, sure. Yeah, um, I'll just open the table of contents. <laughs> okay. The first section, arena, which is a pun on sand, that's the Spanish word for sand, is very much the sort of a few months into the Trump era. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of—and it is the arena. It's kind of the statement of purpose of the book. There's a few poems that I think of as statements of purpose of different kinds. And for me, it sort of sets up—it's sort of the platform or, like, the plinth for the whole thing. And a lot of it is the most recent part, and I kind of wanted that. So it's a little bit of, like, a backwards Mm -hmm. pyramid or something. When did you start writing the book? I started writing the book in 2012. In January and February of 2012. But when I knew it was a sand book, it was during Hurricane Sandy. Uh, okay. So a little later in that year.
1: Oh, so maybe talk, so how did you know it was a sand book? And, and the sand is a theme throughout and Sandra Bland and Hurricane Sandy and Sandy Hook. You know, when did you start making these connections just as they were happening? Or?
2: It happened as they were happening. There's a, there's a poem that sort of articulates how all of this came together. It's called To the Reader, and it's the last poem in Arena, and it sort of tells the story of how— there's a lot of ways to tell the story. So it's sort of—there's all these different bevelings in, but that, that poem sort of explains this moment in during Hurricane Sandy when I found myself in a state of realizing that this was the book that I'd be writing. And my titles always come first— so I I never really know I can't I can't exactly say why it's like the the title happened Hurricane Sandy was an immensely overwhelming experience in New York City and I'll also add I guess for as a special morsel for the two of you and for your listeners that my mom's name is Sandra also mm.
1: mm-hmm. that makes
2: sense and so. The fact that I ended up being led by birds through the book also is is something that just arose through the process, and because I'm so submissive, <laughs> um, I just went with it. I don't know. So that's the first section. You want yeah. should, you want me to keep going,
1: or sure? I mean, you have to go through it section by section. But I guess it's just like when you're writing a book like this, do you know, or you know, there's something. Like as someone who doesn't write poetry, I always mm-hmm. think of poems as being like having this immediacy that yeah. you have to like listen to that voice. You can't really put it off and that you go into it. And because of the shorter form, you complete it more in the moment. Mm-hmm. So there's like measuring that kind of, you know, quotidian aspect of writing with, with a project that's just like so epic in scope. Like, did you know you were writing an almost 500 page book
2: of poems or did you think you were just writing a poem at a time? I was writing a poem at a time. Some sections were written whole as sections. Armorica, for example, I wrote on the day of the Parkland massacre. It happened. Mm. I wrote the whole thing in one day. And Tiffany's poems was written as kind of as one poem, even though it's different poems. So different sections came out in different ways. The lucky thing about poetry is it's fun to write. But then the orchestration of the book as a whole is something that I put a huge amount of labor into. But I do that with all my books. I'm like super into orchestration. I think maybe because I wish I was a composer. And so putting it together in such a way that it has momentum, things have paratactical sort of resonance with each other and that that a sort of narrative can kind of accumulate even though it's not a story. I love lyric poetry But I also am really, really nourished by ancient texts and the epic imagination. And sort of having that kind of scope is something that I've always loved. And it's something that's given me a lot of vitality in times in my life when I have felt like I really needed some. Mm -hmm. So returning to those kind of archaic fields of, of experience that have been so beautifully recorded for us by so many different traditions has given me a lot of strength in my life. And so I wanted to bring some of that to this project too.
0: I wanted to ask you about poetry at the contemporary moment because there's Mm -hmm. obviously, I mean, and since you're talking about these kind of classical poets, right? There's ever since, I mean, there's like an easy kind of Lit one oh one line that's like poetry has had to defend itself ever since its inception, right? When Plato is like poets need to be banished from the Republic, right? right? That they're they're deceptive and and awful, right? So, but it seems to me, and maybe this is just to tap on some earlier stuff, where I'm hanging out in the Twitter sphere, mm-hmm. but it seems like poetry is like really having a moment with like more public visibility for poets like your Tin House fellows, um, like Tommy Pico, Morgan Parker, but also Ocean Wong, who like I mean I know that he's it's because of the novel that he was on Seth Meyers late night. But it's like, you know, there's lots of visibility for poets. And I'm wondering if you think that is this moment calling for poetry in a unique way? Or is it just, well, poetry is always happening. You're just noticing it now.
2: I think it's both. And I think a lot more people are in love with poetry than ever. In my opinion, this comes from the fact that thanks to people's smartphones, People are having an experience of the plasticity of language on a mass level. Um, Can you explain what you mean by that? They're experiencing language as a substance rather mm. than just something that's just falling out of them because they're writing, they're texting, they're writing, and that experience of text as a
0: material—it's—it's—it's
2: mm. um, it's, it's not the same as the manuscript culture and the letter writing that used to happen. Sure. And and there's a lot that would enrich us if we if we sort of learned how to address one another,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, more with with greater fullness.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But people are still having this basic poetry experience or basic poet experience, which is that this language is something that can be worked with and things can be done with it and things can be done to it. And that is really cool because that's a fundamental poet experience mm-hmm. that is happening on a macro level. Poetry is also um, has a very low carbon footprint. It takes very little overhead um, as an art in terms of being able to practice it. Mm. You don't have to be good at it for it to make you feel better. It It doesn't have to be good to make a lot of people feel better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, maybe this is putting Rupi Coer on blast, but I it's mean, like, that's mean, It's
2: fine. You know, I'm happy about that. I'm yeah. happy about her. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like.
0: It's helping someone. That's what you mean. Yeah. Is it's like, you it's know, connecting.
2: Yeah. And, like, that's great. You know, and whatever your gateway drug is, that's great. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, there's always been lots of bad poetry and there's always been lots of bad art and but i think it's good that people are practicing it people need to do whatever they can it's like very dark times out there yeah.
1: in the book i wondered in terms of you know you write a lot about your mother sandra you were saying and there's there's i can't remember what what poem there is where there's there's like a certain recognition that what you're writing, like that something that you're writing is that's a form of public address and that you are going to withhold some information that's like not suited for public address. It doesn't have to do with your mom. I think it's about like a, a compliment that someone gives you. Um, I don't even it's remember. in a, it's in Argentina or I think or something and you're just like, I'm not going to, this isn't going to. Anyways, so there's there's some there's an acknowledgement that there is a construction that it's not just you opening up and sharing everything that that's happened to you that there that there is a construction of the poetic space where it's like you will that you're deciding what to put in and what and what not i wondered just you know you're, you're talking about the the harassment your mother these these really hard things that you've been through how do you decide what to put in or are the things that are too personal for you to to write about in some ways
2: that's a really valuable question and thank you for framing it um with so much care you know, I got into this business because I wanted to share my heart, but I wanted to share my heart truly and honestly. And to do that correctly takes a lot of art and care. And since the beginning, I've been get like, it's funny because this New York Times review just came out and like one of their little tags for it is like, Ariana Rhines, like doesn't shy away from her like deepest vulnerabilities or whatever. And like, when I started out, Brene Brown wasn't a thing yet. Mm-hmm. And like vulnerability and TED Talks weren't a thing yet either. And I've been getting this since the beginning. And it kind of irritated me that they couldn't just say like, dude, she wrote a 400 page book that's fun to read. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, or like, you know, or they or they wouldn't acknowledge the mm. accomplishment in it. Instead, I'm being praised. I'm still being praised for my vulnerability, you know, a decade later. And so I appreciate that you that you honed in on this thing of like there's a lot being given here. And it's being given because I want to share, I want to give my heart. I want to give my heart because I'm a romantic and I think a lot of us feel that way. We want to give our hearts, but only if only we could, like if only we could figure out how to do it truly. You know, and that doesn't mean that I'm like going to like live tweet my bikini wax. <laughs> You know, or or that everyone, you know, you know what I mean? Like it's yeah, just right. like like I think that there's a really big difference. And I think that, you know, as different as more and more women are getting to be in public and as we're figuring out, you know what great artworks are and mean in these times and all of that stuff, and we're figuring all of that out right now. and and so, yeah, you know, I'm gonna give all that I can. I'm going to give all that I can to the best of my ability. And I I want always to do that. And I'm happy about Brene Brown, too. I'm, Mm -hmm. like, very grateful for her. But I do think that we have to learn how to speak about um, works of art that women make in less sexist ways. And so I appreciate you acknowledging that I'm not giving everything away. Oh, no, not at all. (laughs) No it
1: it I mean it's it's so the, the the level of concentration and attention in, in every poem is just like it's so it's you can you can feel the intensity and that I' don't, I don't I think there's a slackness in kind of giving everything away without thinking about it, you know, which I don't feel in that and, and I also there's a the you pay a lot of attention to visceral like there's a lot of period. Um, yeah. there's lots of menstrual blood um, which I don't th- but I, which I think of as kind of an attention to a, a state or um, a, an, even an aesthetic there's like a description of a tampon like taken out for sex and sitting I can't remember the exact language you used to talk about it but it, it, it's a very like visual tampon that's there and I see it and, <laughs> <laughs> um, but right but why but these things should be aestheticized you know why not yeah, um, that's something I I appreciate in the in that text. So I wanted to ask you, speaking of giving your heart and being a romantic, this parallel practice you have of a more spiritual way of interacting with the world, and and being an astrologer, and that spiritual aspect of of your life, and and it comes into the writing, but how how separate is it?
2: Oh, it's not separate at yeah. all. Yeah, I mean, I think. I think that it's totally yeah, it's completely inseparable. Uh-huh. But you
1: are also, you know, you are an astrologer. You you do readings, you you know, so you you visit people. You you that you're uh, you think the role as the like more
2: spiritual presence is is different from the poet or it's the same. Okay. Here's what my astrology practice brought into my life. It gave me an opportunity to really bear witness to people and their immense complexity and the, and to really get to see the intricacy of what people carry and the great dignity of that, mm. it's very hard. Uh, you, you can, I mean, you, if you look at somebody's birth chart, you can love them. It's just, there's just no, you know, it's, you, you get to see a diagram for, for the, the immense complexity of, of a human incarnation which is also an immense privilege. And I love being able to be with people in that kind of a space. It's inspiring. It also freed me as an artist from merely wanting to make people feel better. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in, a very, in, in a, a very cacophonous time and sometimes we want our art to be activism. Sometimes we want our art to be medicine. Sometimes we want our art to be art sometimes we want it to be all three sometimes we get lost and confused about what it can be and in my personal i don't know metabolism it's important for an artwork i like artworks that hold me and stay with me that's why i want i like artworks that are a lot like capacious both in size and in scope but i also like things that shake me up and that stir me up and that trouble me. And I don't think that art's job is just to make us feel safe and seen and okay. Although that's a big part of what art can do. And it's part of what I want to do, but it's not all of what I want to do. So having that practice in some ways, I think, you know, has changed my my writing as an artist and it's changed my sort of interests and in, in ways of doing other collaborations and works of art and other fields and other forms. Mm.
0: So then now in closing, I feel like I'm obligated to ask what your sign is. Scorpio. Oh. <laughs> mm.
1: as if it wasn't obvious.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Okay, well, on balance as a Libra, um, I will close. <laughs> Libra, this cusp. Out. Libra cusp. Libra <laughs> uh-huh. nice. cusp. So we have thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you. We've been speaking with Ariana Rains, author most recently of the collection Sandbook. Thank Thank
2: Thank you guys.
0: You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.